I want to encourage you, maybe today, if it's outside of your norm, to consider writing down a few notes, a couple of scripture references. I want to give you a framework that you can return to. I want to give you something that you could share and pass on to someone else. I want to give you some tools, maybe in your gospel conversations, but most of all, I want to give you calls to worship today from the scriptures. As I was reading and preparing for this message, I skipped ahead just a bit, turning the page to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. And the first phrase really captured my attention, and it really set the context for everything that we've heard up to this point and what we're going to hear from this point. In chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. I think, I think we're living in those later times. And we're seeing unprecedented numbers and more frequent testimonies, if that's the right word, of deconversion. People deconstructing their faith, walking away from the faith. This is not something that should take us uh, by surprise. It's not something we should be shocked or dismayed by. And I, I hope for any of us in this room, we're not basing our faith on the faith of any musician or celebrity or public figure, but on the truth that God has revealed in his word and confirmed in our hearts by his spirit. Nonetheless, it takes a toll. As we see more and more, it seems like, walking in the faith. But the Bible says this was certain. The spirit says expressly later days. And that makes it clear to us why everything that we've studied so far in the life of the church is so critical. If we live in the sort of times that it appears that we do, if we live in times of increasing darkness, if we live in times of increasing antagonism towards God, his people, the church, and even truth itself, then who we are and what we have to say is more necessary than ever. That we be clear on the truth that we be secure in our own faith, that we support one another, that we structure things biblically, that we say things truthfully, that we do things in love and boldness is never more critical than it is right now. And ultimately, what is being established in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and 4, and 1 and 2, for that matter, is this. The gospel is what's ultimately at stake. That's why we talk about the life of the church and the worship of the church and the leadership of the church and the structure and the order of the church because the gospel itself is at stake. And as much as we see struggles in this world today and as much as we have solutions that we like to discuss, political, social, economic, whatever they may be, we know the ultimate solution to the brokenness in this world is the brokenness in individual hearts and that can only be solved by the gospel. It can only be solved by Christ. And we're not going to see the sort of world that we long to see until Christ comes back and rules it himself. Nonetheless, we labor now. And so I want to give you some tools this morning before I dig into this single verse. Some presuppositions, if you will, that give you a structure to understand it and, and apply it and to do it. So just a couple of thoughts here. If you want to write these down in the margin somewhere, just remember them. Technically speaking... 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, is what we could call a catechizing hymn. Now, I know that sounds a bit strange. That's not the sort of terminology we use. If you're familiar with the term catechism, which I know many of you are, catechism or to catechize simply means to teach. 
Now, in the history of the church over some 2,000 years, catechisms have been part and parcel of what it means to be part of a church, how we teach one another, how we ask questions, and we give biblical answers, and those are catechisms. Well, this is a hymn that catechizes. It teaches truths about Christ. And the reason I say that it's a hymn is most likely what Paul is referencing here was a statement already known to the church. He's, he's centering this entire letter that he wrote to Timothy around this central truth. This is the hub of the wheel of this letter. This hymn that the church would know, this is what we believe. This is who we are. This is central to everything. While other things might be debatable or controversial, this cannot be because everything hinges on this. It rises or falls here. Now, as you read these words I'm about to share with you, and we're going to read them together, actually, I, I want you to understand that this is not a chronology. Okay, so if you're looking at this thing, that seems to be like maybe a perplexing order. It's a bit confusing. It's not meant to be understood chronologically as much as it is to be understood theologically. It's making a statement. And then the theology of the statement goes something like this. If you look at the text in terms of couplets, two phrases at a time, three sets of two, there are comparisons and contrasts there. So look in the text. You've got a contrast between flesh and spirit, angels and nations, the world and glory. What's this text telling us just on the surface level? Christ is both fully human and he's fully divine. He's both of those things, as miraculous as that is. Christ is known in the heavens, fully known. And Christ will be made known among all the nations. Christ will be received by many on this earth, we know. And Christ will be glorified by all in eternity who are there with him. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to stand and we're going to read aloud together or state aloud this confession. A confession that goes all the way back to the first century of the church. Let's read this together. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these amazing truths. Fathers, we have sung today to hear the story of Jesus. We do pray now that you would write the story on our hearts that this would not just be informational, Father, but transformational to us, that every believer would leave encouraged by the gospel, that those today who are not yet believers would be so confronted by the powerful truth of the gospel that is eternal, that is applicable to every living person. Father, I pray that they would repent of sin, they would believe the gospel, and they would follow Christ. Father, I pray you be much glorified now in what we do, as we hear your word, as we respond to it, as we love it, and as we live it, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul uses the phrase here, mystery. Great is the mystery. Now let me give you just a little bit of historical context there for a moment. Second only to Judaism in the world, and now the rising spread of Christianity in the world, in the first century, the most pervasive sort of religion in the world is what could loosely be described as mystery religions whether those are Greek in those Greek temples, or whether they're Roman in those Roman temples, or whether they're Persian in the many Persian gods, or Egyptian in the Egyptian gods, these mystery religions all had something in common. And they were centered around five basic commonalities. 
The, the first one is this. A mystery religion is, as its name suggests, something that only its initiates would understand. In, in other words, the masses will never know the deep or darker secrets of it or the more inclusive truths of it until you commit yourself to it. So as you begin to worship in this temple or you begin to worship in this cult or you begin to embrace this system as you're brought in, as you pledge yourself to it, you're given mystery knowledge, this sort of knowledge that would be transformational to you or might give you eternal life or give you riches or rewards or give you spiritual powers. A second commonality they had was this. They based their whole understanding of creation in the world and salvation in life on just the natural seasons of birth and growth and death. The recycling season that we see just naturally speaking. A seed goes into the ground and it dies in order to sprout. As it sprouts, it gives life, it gives harvest, and then those harvests go back to seed and death and it recycles itself again and again. And this mystery religion says that's the way life is death and dying and life number three every mystery religion centered around some sort of myth around that god so in ephesus whether that's diana or in rome where it might be some other god or wherever it might be on the planet some myth surrounding that particular so-called deity that has something to do with some great power that it had usually how it conquered a great enemy or conquered death and came back to life or something miraculous that it did implicit in all that is that belief in this one can give you some sort of some sort of redemption okay number four mystery religions had no concern for doctrine they had no concern for truth there were no foundational statements it was all about feeling and emotion and experience it, it was all about external things what you might not objectively know but what you might subjectively and I use this word very lightly quote-unquote feel so in these mystery religions, it was typical that there would be a lot of different modes to try to stir up emotion, uh, whether that's music or fasting or acts of purification or blazing lights or fire or statements that would be repeated again and again. Had a lot, it looks a lot like sort of modern so-called Christian worship that we see in so many churches and places today. About emotion, experience, feeling, not about truth. And finally, number five, the immediate goal was always a mystical experience, that you might have some sort of mystical encounter, something that would make you feel like you connected with this so-called little g God, something that made you feel like now you have some sort of union, some sort of existence outside of your normal self. If that sounds a lot like the way the modern world, modern Christianity considers revival, it's not by coincidence. These were the mystery religions, but Christianity... Biblical Christianity is not at all like that. Biblical Christianity does not look like that at all. The household of God that we're a part of is not like a mystery religion. So when Paul says, great is the mystery of godliness, he's not talking about the mystery of how to live a godly life. He's talking about the mystery of this faith. Great is this mystery. He's saying this is something different that you and I believe. Remember verse 15 from chapter 3? It describes the church, the household of God. It's described this way. It's the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. What is the church? How is it different than first century and second century and third century mystery religions, cultic mystery religions? Well, one, the church is the household of God himself, the one true and living God. There's only one God. That one God has one church. He has one people. He has one means by, way, by which we might know him, worship him, and love him forever, and that's his son. There's an exclusivity to it. It's 
Christ, one people. Number two, it's the pillar of the truth. I, I love this statement by John Stott on what a pillar means in terms of the truth in the church. He says the purpose of pillars is not only to hold a roof firm, but to thrust it high so that it can be clearly seen even from a distance. Just so the church holds the truth aloft so that it's seen and admired by the world. Indeed, as pillars lift a building high while remaining themselves unseen, so the church's function is not to advertise itself, but to advertise and display the truth. So Paul says to Timothy, this is what the church is in this culture that's very dark, very pagan, very cultic, and their only religious experiences are emotional and esoteric and false. Lift up the truth. Let the truth be the foundation of your ministry and the purpose of your ministry. Lift it up. And then he says it's a buttress of the truth. A buttress isn't part of the building's foundation. A buttress is a support of the, the structure as a whole. The buttress stabilizes the whole foundation, the walls, the pillars, everything. In the same way, that's what the church does. The church stabilizes the people of God, uphold the truth. The people of God are a people of truth. What most defines us, not our feelings, not our emotions, not our emotional experiences, not being carried away or, or being made captive by what we feel, but by the truth. It's the truth. That's the deep grounding. That's the deep-rooted foundation that we have, the truth. And he says, thus, the church proclaims the great mystery of godliness. That's what we're here for. Proclaim, propagate, hold up, protect, guard, speak, enjoy, celebrate the truth. The mystery of godliness. But when the scriptures, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses the word mystery, it's not referring to something like those mystery religions that only a few can know, or that only a few can solve, or that's not knowable at all. When the scriptures refer to mystery, it's talking about something that was long hidden to man, but is now revealed by God. Mystery is not no unknowable things. Mystery is revealed things. You wouldn't know how much God loves you and what that love really looks like or means beyond any sort of emotional feel to it if you didn't know what the cross taught us. You wouldn't know how to reach God beyond your own imaginations, beyond your own thoughts or ideas, beyond your own designs, unless it was revealed to us, this is the means to the Father, and it's Jesus Christ. The revelation of salvation solves the mystery of the separation that we have from God, and this is what we declare. Romans chapter 16 Verses 25 and 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Why does God reveal this mystery? So that people will respond to it by faith. How does God reveal this mystery? Through the preaching of the word. This is God's great plan. And so you see the tie when we saw last week in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, one of the roles, or not a role so much as a requirement of deacons in the church, is they have to hold the mystery of the faith. They have to understand this revelation and hold firm to it. This is critical to the life of the church. So with that in mind, I want us just simply to consider this morning the greatness of the gospel. The greatness of the gospel. And I'm hoping just with the scriptures that the word of God will weigh so much on us that we'll respond like the Apostle Paul who wrote this, truly, undeniably great is this mystery of the faith. Undeniably great. 
That's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the weightiness of this. It is so completely different from any other religious system, any other religious practice, anything else in all the world. Great is this mystery revealed to us. And I'm going to give you this in six propositional statements that align with this text. Keeping in mind those couplets, the spiritual and the temporal, the, the eternal and the now, Jesus and, and the spiritual life and Jesus and the physical life and Jesus and eternity. Number one, the infinite, almighty, incomprehensible God. Now just think about this for a moment. I, I wish we could just take the time to just sit in silence and meditate on this. The infinite, almighty, incomprehensible God, the same one who was and is and is to come, this God became as one of those that he created. Think about that for a moment. God in his infinitude, God in his glory, God in his inestimable worth, God in his unknowableness. Here's what God did when we see that Jesus condescended to us. I don't think we have even a bit of understanding that's worthy of how far his condescension was. That he would stoop to us. He took on flesh. He became as us. God who created everything. God to whom all glory belongs. God who is infinite in every way and authoritative over all. God who deserves all worship and glory becomes a baby. Born in relative poverty. In a cave somewhere. In Bethlehem. And he lived a human life. From his birth, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. To his amazing life, Hebrews chapter 2 describes the worth and purpose of his life. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's you, that's me, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This ought to bend our minds. This ought to stretch our emotions. This ought to feel so heavy to us. He partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Surely it's not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people in every respect, physically, emotionally, in every respect. He wasn't masquerading as a man. He didn't simply appear to be like us, but in every respect, he was made like us. Think about that. Now, I, I have to say, I, I loathe the modern advertising campaign. He gets us. I, I get the premise where, they're, where they started from. If they had used the Gospels and used the book of Hebrews, I, I might be a fan. Because he does get us in that he was made like us in every respect. But he was made like us in order that he could save us from our sins. And that's where we see his sacrificial death. Isaiah 53. What a, what a weighty text. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And this was his life. But it wasn't just his death. It was in his resurrection that we see the God-made man. Jesus was raised not just spiritually. It wasn't just a spirit that floated up out of that grave. 
It's nothing like reincarnation. It's nothing like Hinduism or Buddhism or modern spiritualism. When Jesus was raised, he was raised. The tomb was empty. The body wasn't there. The body came out. The body greeted the believers. The claim of Jesus' bodily resurrection is so central to the gospel that if you lose it, you lose the gospel. If Jesus didn't come out of that tomb as a resurrected human body, then everything that we believe is false. We're gathering here today for no good reason other than just feel better about ourselves and scratch each other's backs, I guess. But as it is, it's central to the gospel. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. But praise God, he's been raised. He is raised indeed. He said to Thomas in John 20, 27, put your finger here. Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it on my side. Don't disbelieve. Believe. You, you think this can't be real. It boggles the imagination. All right, touch it. See, right here. Come on, Thomas. Don't doubt. Believe. Romans 8, 11 says that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And so the Holy Spirit confirms and proves that Jesus Christ is God's own Son and that He's our Savior by raising Him from the dead. Brings me to number two. The transition from the God made man to the man who was God in the flesh. Though he was fully man, afflicted, tempted, tempted, even weak as we are, with all of our human frailties, he was and is truly and fully the Son of God. He wasn't just an anointed man or a blessed man or a particularly chosen or gifted man. He was the God man. This is God in the flesh walking among us. We see this from his very birth. In Luke chapter 1, verse 30, the angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid. You found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom will be no end. Can you imagine Mary hearing that? Whoa! Mary said to the angel, How will this be? And then she adds this. How will this be since I'm a virgin? How will the king of the universe be born through me? And I've known no man. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born by you will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is no mere man. This is no mere baby born that day. This is the Son of God born that day. And in his baptism, we see the affirmation in Matthew 3.16. When Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, because that's what baptism is. You go under it, you come up out of it. Immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And he hears a voice, this is my beloved Son. To the miraculous deeds that Jesus did, every wonderful act, every powerful act of miraculous work, how did they come about? Acts 10.38 gives us insight. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Holy Spirit was working through him. And what about his resurrection? What does resurrection show? His resurrection was not like Lazarus' resurrection. Lazarus was a foreshadowing. Lazarus was raised only to die again. His was temporary. And his resurrection was by the voice of Christ. Christ was raised by the Spirit, and he would not die again. He destroys death. Lazarus only got a taste of death. 
and gave us an object lesson that we could not forget about resurrection, but his was not the resurrection to eternal life. Only Jesus could do that. Christ suffered once for sins, Peter wrote, the righteous, Christ, for the unrighteous, all the rest of us, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So when we think of this word vindication, Paul wrote this to Timothy in verse 16. He says that he was manifested in the flesh and vindicated by the Spirit. What does he mean vindicated? It's God's display through Jesus of his truth, that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He did exactly what he said he would do. He is our only means of salvation. He's the vindication of God's mercy, God's judgment. Romans 1.4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, the great vindication of God. Is God just and holy? Yes, and the cross shows us that. That he deals with Jesus according to our sins. Is God merciful and loving? He does not treat us as our sins deserve. But he treats us according to his love and kindness. Why? Through Christ, on whom his wrath was poured out. It's the great vindication of God that we see God in his character, which seems so contradictory to us. How can one be holy and just and merciful and loving simultaneously? The cross shows us this. And then all the way to Pentecost, when it's the Holy Spirit declaring the mission of Christ through the power of his spirit, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes to you and you'll be my witnesses all over the planet. So we see these both revelations, the human revelation of Christ, the divine revelation of Christ. This is what we believe. Number three, Christ is fully known by the angels. Imagine the perspective, the purview of heaven when it comes to Christ. This is something that, you know, sometimes when I'm reading some scripture or just sitting around pondering and thinking, I wonder about, what, what, what was it like for the angels to look down over, as it were, figuratively speaking, the, the banner of heaven to the activities on earth, knowing what they know, the preexistent God, the one present at creation, the one by whom all that was made was made. And they see the loathing he received from lowly creation, the abuse and, and the scorn, the distrust and the betrayal, the, the anger and the retribution. Can you imagine? I just wonder sometimes. I wonder the great mercy of God and the great grace of Christ that holds back the angels of heaven from destroying those who would mock the Almighty. Can you imagine? Do you have any idea how much mercy and grace there is in Christ that he never called them down? You think of Elijah. Remember the story of Elijah? He's walking along the street and those boys are mocking him. They're mocking the man of God. I mean, Elisha, not Elijah. Elisha. And they're basically saying to him, you're no Elijah. You think you are. You've taken on the role of Elijah, but you're not Elijah. If you were Elijah, you'd go up like Elijah. You know, Elijah was transcended. He didn't die. God just took him up. Go up, bald head. Go up. Do what Elijah did. What did, what did Elisha do? He calls bears out of the woods. They, they wrecked those kids. They wrecked them. But God, in his mercy and grace, withholds the myriad armies of heaven. He's fully known by the angels. And the reason for mentioning the angels here 
is that this mystery of the faith, this great revelation of who God is, what God has done in Christ, what God will one day do, they know this story. They know this story. And by the way, angels here, it typically means in Scripture what you think it means, what it says it means. It's those principalities and powers of the unseen world. It shows that God is created for his purposes and service and worship. And we know from the Gospels that some of the angels were witnesses of the incarnate Christ. They knew him there. We also know the angels sang at his birth, Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. We know that when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness and was fasting for those 40 days and nights, we know the angels attended to him there, according to Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. We know that an angel even appeared in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus was, was praying that if there's any other way that God might save these people, let this cup pass. Not because Jesus feared the physical pain. Not because Jesus feared the retribution of the Romans. Not because Jesus feared the trial. Because Jesus understood the spiritual disconnect of taking on the sin of the world. And for the one time only to be disconnected from the perfect love of the Father and the Spirit as he looked on him who bore our sin. But the angels were also witnesses to the risen Christ, who saw Christ raised first, who declared it first. It was the angels. How did they know? If they didn't see, they saw the physical resurrected Christ. And finally, the angels witnessed the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Don't leave out the ascension as an essential part of your understanding of the gospel. It doesn't stop at the cross, and it doesn't stop even at the resurrection. But when we understand the gospel and appreciate it and declare it, it goes all the way to the ascension. I'll tell you why in just a moment. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, saying, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So there's your clue one of the primary reasons why the, the ascension of Christ is so critical to our gospel understanding. They saw him physically. Hundreds saw the risen Lord and the ascended Lord, and they heard this message from the heavens. You saw him go up this way, and here's our great promise that we're waiting. You will see him return this way. He's coming again in glory. I love this statement by Thomas Oden, and it's a summary of what I've just shared. These ministering spirits sang at his birth, ministered at the hour of his temptation, guarded his sepulcher, his tomb, attested to his ascension, and expected his return. And so should we. Number four, not only is Jesus fully known in the heavenlies, known by the angelic body, he is being declared to the nations. This was part of God's plan from the very beginning. God was not just a regional God. God was not an ethnic or a tribal God. He's not just a, a God of the Israelites, so the Egyptians can have your gods, and the Greeks can have your many gods, and the Romans your many gods, and the Persians your many gods, and the Jews will have this God. He's a God for the nation. Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. That's a promise. I will be. You know, we, it's easy for us if we're not theologically, no, biblically rooted, to get so easily discouraged at the sort of times that we live in. But our God is not powerless. God has already promised what he will do. 
and how he will make himself known, how he will be glorified, he will be vindicated, the world will know him. Some will know him as Savior, some will know him as judge, but none will deny him, none will be able. Matthew 24, 14, how did God carry out the promise in Psalm 46, 10? The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then, then the end will come. He says, I will be glorified in the nations. How will God be glorified in the nations? through the preaching of the good news of his son who offers salvation to all who believe in him. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And what will be the fruit of that? What's the promised fruit of that? What's as true in this very moment as if it has already happened? Revelation chapter five, verse nine. They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. We sang about that. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God, catch this, from every tribe and language and people and nation. The psalmist said it would be so. Jesus commanded how it would be so. Revelation promises us the fruit and gives us the picture of the culmination that it is so. Jesus, the sole means of salvation for people everywhere. This is no mystery religion. This is no regional God. This is no God of the Jews. This is the God of creation, the God of the universe. Number five, Jesus is believed on in every place, among every culture, and in every generation. Think about that statement I just said. Jesus is believed on in every place, among every culture, and in every generation. You and I ought to be amazed. We ought to sit in amazement at how the gospel penetrates every sort of political system, cultural structure, pre-existent beliefs, takes root and makes disciples. Does that amaze you? There are a lot of places on this planet I, I hope to see before I die. But it amazes me in dark places like India, the gospel has gone out and churches are being birthed and the kingdom of God is coming in so many places. Or Africa, or far Asia, or Europe, or South America, or here, wherever the gospel goes. Have you noticed that, the power of the gospel? That, that's why Paul said this, I'm quite sure. In Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this. The idea is I won't keep this quiet. Why? Because it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. For all who believe. The Jew first, that's where it began. First in chronology, not in priority or preference. The Jew first, but also to the Greek. To every non-Jew. Jews, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then boom, the ends of the earth. Everywhere the gospel goes, people get saved. Though none seek him, according to Romans, miraculously, none that yet, many are found by him. What do you think of that? He says, none seek me. There are none that do that. But yet many are being found by him. Why? His grace, his goodness. Though none deserve him, many receive his benefits. Many receive the grace of him. We sang about this. We don't deserve it, but many are receiving grace from him. And people near and people far are given new lives by him. This is the amazing truth, and this is what he's saying. This was the hymn of the early church. 
This was a reminder, let's be faithful, let's not quit, let's not be afraid, let's not give way to the pressures of our culture, let's not give way to the difficulties and challenges of persecution in front of us. Let's be reminded of this, if we will keep being obedient, God will be faithful. So let's don't stop, wherever the gospel goes, converts are being made, they're being made. If you want to read about this scripturally, I didn't give you a lot of scripture references on that section. Read Ephesians chapter 2 this afternoon. This is the story of what I just said. This is how God takes people far from him. And Ephesians chapter 2, not coincidentally, that's obviously the same city where Timothy was pastoring in the context in which Paul wrote this letter. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we see what happens through the power of the gospel. And number 6, we have witnessed his ascension. When I say we, I mean the church. The early church was as critical to their faith. We saw him, and that was part of their early testimony. Even as Paul was circulating his letters and Paul was preaching the gospel, he could easily say as a valid proof of Christ's resurrection, many are still alive today who saw him. That was a critical apologetic in the first century. People saw him. Jesus' body wasn't snatched away. This is not some great conspiracy that was played out by his disciples. This is not something that the church manipulated so that a religion could be created. You can't hide a risen person walking around, talking with people. Nor was his ascension hidden, and many saw him. We witnessed his ascension into glory, and as a result, and this is the necessary connection, we saw him go up, we expect him to come back. We await his return. i ask you a quick question, kind of theological in nature. What would you identify as the, the climax or the completion of Jesus' ministry on earth? You know, I know sometimes we'll reference, well, that's got to be the cross, right? Jesus on the cross says it's finished. That's a climactic, concluding statement. Yes, I get it. Most often, I think people would say, well, it's the resurrection. Our whole faith is centered on it. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If the resurrection is not true, there is no faith, no reason for faith. And you're not forgiven. You're still guilty before God. But I would suggest to you the climactic concluding event was the ascension into glory. This is the full vindication of Jesus, the Son of God. This is the full circle of the gospel, that Jesus, who took on flesh and came to earth, is now ascended back to heaven. When Peter was preaching at Pentecost, and he gave that great message in Acts chapter 2, the climax of what God had done in Christ is Acts 2, verse 33. He is now exalted to the right hand of God. To support this, Peter quotes Psalm 110. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110. The imagery of the Lord taking his seat at the right hand of the Lord. Christ, the Messiah, taking his seat at the right hand of Yahweh, the Father. In this great hymn of the faith, similar to what we just, what we just read, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Philippians 2 is one of those statements that was repeated in the early church. And in this statement of the faith, Paul skips over the resurrection and moves straight from Jesus' death on the cross to his being exalted at the highest place. It's as if this is all one continuous thing. He's resurrected to ascend. And the conclusion of resurrection is ascension. Being found in human form, he says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And John wrote... The words of Jesus, when Jesus 
was in the garden tomb telling Mary, don't hold on to me. Remember, Mary discovers him. He tells Mary, don't hold on to me. Why? Why would he say that to him? Because he has not yet ascended. And what was the gospel message he gave to his disciples? John 20, verse 17. What did he tell them? I am ascending to the Father. In Daniel chapter 7, we have a prophecy of Jesus. This is the power of the Old Testament and why we keep our connection to it and find our roots in it. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, here's what we see. Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, there came, like, came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Everlasting dominion, kingdom that can't be destroyed. The fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7 is in the ascension of Christ. He ascends back where he rules and he reigns. According to Revelation 3.21, Jesus conquered sin and death. And I love this emphatic statement. And then he sat down. That's the culmination. And he sat down by the Father. And where he sits now, he lives to make intercession for us. He's always interceding for us. Where he sits now, he rules and he reigns, and everything is under his control. So don't be so skeptical or cynical about the world that you live in and think that it's out of control because that's an affront to the one who sits on the throne and has the earth as his footstool. He rules and reigns. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, Peter repeated that in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So know this, Christian, this gospel that we proclaim, this purpose for our church, the thing, the central truth that we are to lift up like pillars, that we are to support and protect in every way like buttresses, the thing that makes us the people of God. At this very moment, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And according to Hebrews 1.3, he's upholding all things. Upholding all things by the word of his power. And we know this soon. Soon. In a timetable we don't know, he's going to descend from heaven with a shout. The trump of the archangel. The voice of God. He's going to gather all. Everyone will receive their final sentence. A new heaven and a new earth will be established. This is where we stand. This is the gospel. This is who we are. This is why we worship. This is what we do. And this is why we hold fast to our faith. And we don't depart from it. What's your response to the gospel? Gospel is a proclamation. It's not just an invitation. A portion of it includes a command. But ultimately, the gospel is just simply good news proclaimed. Good news that you have to respond to. What will you do with this? What will you do with this great story of the Almighty God becoming man so that he might save man from his sins? The Almighty God, who was fully God, vindicated by the Holy Spirit from his supernatural birth to his bodily resurrection all the way to his ascension into glory. God who stands on the throne of the universe and will one day hold every living person or every person living and dead to account what will you do with that that's just simply truth 
You've got to decide how you respond to that. My strongest, strongest encouragement to you is to respond to that with faith. Humble faith. Thank you, God, that you would come down to me, a sinner. That you would care about me. Among the billions and billions that have lived, that you would descend to me to save me. Thank you, God, for taking on my sins in the flesh, in the person of your son. Thank you, Jesus, for your great life that was perfectly lived, though you faced every temptation. For me, you beat those temptations. For me, you never succumbed. For me, you were a perfect sacrifice. For me, you willingly took the wrath of the Almighty on yourself so that I could be forgiven. For me, you were raised. For me, you ascended, and for me, you will return. In great humility, God saved me a sinner. Save me a sinner. What's your response to the gospel? Christian, Man, that ought to give you something to celebrate. That ought to give you something to be encouraged by. That ought to set your internal, I don't know, your gyroscope, your internal meter, whatever it is, that ought to put you right again. That ought to rectify some wrong thinking. That, that ought to fix some bad perspective. Uh, that ought to renew some waning hope a little bit. That ought to set you right again as you leave this place today because of what Christ has done for us. I want you to pray with me this morning. God, I thank you for the great truths of the gospel, these truths that we proclaim, these truths that we declare. Father, we thank you for these today. We thank you that most of all, whether or not we feel a thing, Father, forgive us for being so guided and manipulated at times by emotion and feeling and manipulation of those feelings. For these things are true and the enemy would do all that he can to disguise the truth, to diminish it. Uh, to, to cause us to disregard it, to doubt it, Father, but this is the truth upon which everything rests. We have proclaimed it, we have sung it, we have heard it from your word today in so many texts. Father, we thank you for that which is true for us. So, Father, I pray that there would be someone in this room right now, I mean, right now, say, God, save me. I need to be saved by you. I don't want to be on the wrong side of the Almighty. I don't want to be raised up to judgment and face God with all of my sins and none of them forgiven. With every secret revealed, every hidden thing unveiled, unable to say, it's not fair. It's not fair. I don't deserve this judgment. No one will be able to say that. Father, I pray that instead with humility, they would say, God, save me, and they would know that those who call on him, he saves. You promised to. Jesus himself said, whoever comes to me, I will receive them. I will not cast them out, but I will raise them up on the last day. Father, I pray there will be some that will come to you today. Right now in their hearts, maybe there are many things they don't yet understand. But Father, they understand their need of you, their need for a Savior. They understand that they're sinful, and they need to be forgiven. And the only means of forgiveness is through the work that Christ did for us on the cross, and to believe it and trust it and accept it. And to surrender our lives to Jesus as King, as Sovereign, as Lord. So, Father, I pray they would do that. Father, I pray Christians today would just be, I pray we'd go out of here on a cloud. We have been saved. We are being sanctified. One day, we will be glorified. This is sure. We don't simply hope. We know. We rest in the truth of your promise, and that gives us great, great confidence great encouragement today. So Father, bless us as we respond. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.